Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. In today's episode, we speak to Amber Margarita and Amanda Chronic about designing for wellness incorporating sustainability into their designs and how accreditations should be considered. As Principal of Interior Design at Spacesmiths and an accredited green building professional, Amber is an active designer in the non-profit and social services sector, working with global brands for architectural interiors projects. Amanda is a Senior Associate at Duda Payne Architects, as well as a Lead Green Associate. She brings a creative approach to problem solving and has worked on many complex projects. So welcome this afternoon. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Amber, if I could just come to you first and ask you about your current position and what brought you into this particular area of architecture? Thank you. My name is Ambar Margarita and I am a principal of interior design at an architecture firm in New York City called Space Smith. And what brought me in was really a keen interest in designing environments that promote human health and comfort, that are human-centered, and really think critically about what a good dynamic relationship between humans and the built environment is and could be. Amanda, same question for you. What intrigues you about wellness in architecture? Hi, this is Amanda Chronic from Dudapain Architects. I'm an associate principal here. I've been at Dudapain for 14 years this month. For me personally, the challenge of making spaces meaningful, comfortable, memorable, approachable is just a, a really fun thing to do. And is there a difference between wellness and well-being? Because we see both of those words used a lot. And I'm thinking if a building is built and put together with wellness in mind, That makes it easier for users to experience well-being and to be able to look after themselves. What would be your take on that? Wellness in architecture to me, so when buildings connect us to each other and to nature, to our place, and give us a sense of belonging, I think it's away from specific fitness uses or mental health uses. It really can be across, you know, any building type. And the difference between wellness and well-being, I I think, is a really personal one. For me, well-being is a lot easier to define because I think it's something we can achieve personally um, as an individual. You know, we seek well-being in our lives, whether it's financial, mental, physical, you, you name it. Wellness, I think, is a lot more broad. And I think the origin of it is, you know, in physical and mental health. And has broadened to include you know, everything from nutrition to sleep, general self-care. You know, how can spaces or, or programs give people the opportunity to be in charge of their own wellness and self-care? I think architecture and buildings can help promote wellness in different ways. As Amanda mentioned, for example, sleep. Appropriate daylighting or even artificial daylight that mimics the sun's intensity and color temperature can help with our circadian rhythm or a person's 24-hour sleep-wake cycle. So buildings that have appropriate access to daylight, outdoor spaces, well-designed artificial lighting can help with 
wellness elements. And I do agree that well-being is a much larger concept and it has a lot to do with many different things. And if we just look at wellness within architecture, what do you think are the three most critical elements that need to be considered or included to allow people to embrace well-being within that? I think and especially now coming through, you know, two and a half years of a pandemic, our buildings are in most climates ventilated, right? We have sealed buildings that have forced air ventilation and the quality of that air is now something that everybody is aware of. So we've all of a sudden made the invisible visible. Now we have the quality of that air really coming into focus as part of our of our wellness or well-being in an indoor environment. And tied to that is something I'm very passionate about is material health. So what are we putting into, you know, a built environment is a series of, of very complex assemblies from a wall to a floor to even the cabinetry in a kitchen or pantry. And what are those things made of? And are they off-gassing um, harmful things that could put human occupants into close contact with harmful chemicals that are not great for their health? So followed by light how much access to sunlight do you have? Is that distributed evenly amongst all of the building occupants in the areas that are most occupied? Or is it do only a select few have access to light and views? I want to say water because it's something I'm very passionate about, water filtration and water quality in our buildings, which could often be overlooked, but it's also a very, very important one for our health. I think Amber just hit on some of the really major ones, critical pieces of wellness and, and buildings. So maybe I could just add to it. For us, making sure that there's social space, places that are that kind of third place. It's not work. It's not home. You know, it's that space where, you know, chance happenings uh, can occur and, and we could kind of enrich ourselves socially and emotionally. When you're designing for wellness, do you think about the seasonality elements of these areas in a building? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I hadn't been asked this question directly before, but, you know, I think we're always kind of thinking about where the buildings are. That's a big deal. You know, whether projects in Florida or Arkansas, the needs seasonally are very different and almost reversed in a lot of ways. You know, our project, um, the Center for Health and Wellbeing in Winter Park, Florida, you know, is centrally located in, in Florida near um, just north of Orlando. And so for them, the winter months are really comfortable to be outside. So providing, you know, garden space that's shaded and inhabitable, enjoyable was really important. And so in that instance, we worked around this idea of the seven gardens and making sure that during those winter months, they could really get out there and enjoy, you know, all these different spaces and have different sensory experiences. Yeah. And I suppose it's the flexibility, isn't it? That needs to be built into these buildings. I absolutely agree. And even just as Amanda is speaking of the winter garden and the concept of the seven gardens, it's really about acknowledging that as human beings, we are living, breathing organisms and we are just like every other organism on this planet and we we work in a cycle and then we live on a planet that has its own cycles and so how can the built environment provide that sense of safety and shelter that allows us to thrive and wellness design and sustainability 
you would think they would go very clearly hand in hand, but do they actually work well together? Do you find you have enough access to materials that are deemed sustainable for your designs? Yes. I think about materials. I think about architectural materials. And that is a, that is a whole area of research that is quite complex because every you know, building material has so many different things in it. But to think about wellness and sustainability in tandem in a much broader sense, I think sustainability is a word that is thrown around. And what it personally means to me is with every design move, with every decision, even in the way you live your life, what I'm doing, is it going to meet my own needs without harming the needs of my children and my children's children and, you know, your children and and future generations and other living organisms on the planet. So when we talk about building frameworks that work really well together, and if I were to mention two, it would be LEAD, Leadership and Energy and Environmental Design, which has been around for many years, and WELL, which is a relatively newer, I think they've been around around nine years. And both frameworks uh, work really well, where LEAD focuses on the building's impact on the environment around it and a little bit on the human health as well. But WELL is all about the sustainability and the wellness of the building occupants. And in that sense, using frameworks like those in tandem, it is very easy to see the overlaps between wellness and design and sustainability. Absolutely. You know, sustainability has become so commonplace, you know, it's part of the codes now. But, you know, I think as architects and people who are part of this industry that creates, you know, the largest amount of carbon uh, in our atmosphere, it, it just as stewards of that, I think practicing sustainability is a responsibility. In wellness in particular, if we consider ourselves an extension of that and practicing wellness in our everyday, being good stewards of our environment gives us that kind of mental clarity. You know, it's like if I'm, you know, being good and putting good out in the world, then I'm getting that back. And it just kind of provides Uh, a sense of calm. And of all these key elements, when you're designing and looking at a project, where is it important to spend the money to make sure that you get a building that is very well suited to wellness? Hmm. This is a great question. I think we've kind of danced around it a bit. The exterior envelope is, you know, a necessity (laughs) of a building. And so I think paying attention to what it's doing to the interior how it's impacting mechanical systems, you know, all those things is kind of the first defense in creating a building that's sustainable and thoughtful, but also providing natural light and thermal comfort to a project. And so I think spending money on efficient glazings, making sure that you've got plenty of windows that are providing natural light to the occupants is a great place to start. And then I'd say lighting glare is a, a huge discomfort to occupants across uses of a project. I have to agree with Amanda. In a new or an existing building, I think the first thing is to make sure that your building envelope or your exterior walls, your roofs, anywhere where water or a thermal bridge might happen, where cold or hot air might leak into the building, just make sure that you have a sealed environment. When you have a very airtight building, then you really have to worry about or pay particular attention, especially in existing buildings, to if the existing materials are are safe and 
I really think that if we're thinking about a commercial building, let's say we're thinking about a workplace. Um, I designed for a lot of nonprofits in the human services sector. And there's something called the 330-300 rule where an organization might spend $3 for their utilities, 30 on average for rent, and 300 in terms of its employees. This includes salaries and benefits and all of that. Your largest investment is in your people. And so if you can design an environment that helps improve their conditions, um, reduces stress, reduces absenteeism, and prevents them from getting sick from the building, then that is the best investment that you could make in your organization. So I really do think it is a priceless investment to focus on the wellness in the built environment. Have you seen any changes in the wellness design area since COVID? Are people asking you to emphasize perhaps the quality of air? So there's a lot of emphasis on air quality, either retrofitting existing mechanical units, increasing air filters if the unit can handle it, adding things like bipolar ionization. There's an increased emphasis on building cleanliness and cleanable materials, reducing crowding, even perceived crowding. There's also been a, a very big focus on nature and nature-like spaces, access to the outdoors, choosing a location based on if there's a park nearby or ample daylight and views. And finally, I would mention there's a big emphasis on community and creating intentional spaces for informal social interactions. Thank you. And Amanda, what have you seen as a result of the pandemic? Definitely an increase in just space, you know, making sure that there's plenty of space for each person. That's not only, you know, in just a healthy environment, you know, making sure that everybody's got that social distance, but it also is a reduction in anxiety. You know, when you're in a crowded space these days, you could really kind of feel that tension. And so I think for us, it's looking at where people are gathering and making sure there's places to provide comfort spatially. And then making sure that a lot of high touch things, you know, whether it's doors, plumbing fixtures, you name it, a lot of those are going to touchless. And when they can't get around it, a lot of those fixtures have antimicrobial options now. The other thing is, like Amber mentioned, mechanical systems. You know, everybody's going to MERV filters these days, talking about air exchanges and bringing outside air in. So the mechanical system's really getting a lot of attention these days and making sure that air is processed and clean. And I'm thinking it's probably a bit too early to see the results of this extra caution when it comes to air. We're not even really a year out of lockdown, are we? So it's difficult to tell. I'm just intrigued to know whether these efforts that people are making are paying off in in terms of everybody's health. Well, it's interesting because as you're asking the question, I'm thinking there are so many variables. The best way to really have a concrete you know, evidence-based answer for this question is to survey, to see how many people are coming in, how many sick days before and after, for example, in a work environment. And that is an even harder question to answer these days because the work landscape is shifting. And so you might plan, let's say we changed all of the ventilation in the space and now we're in a hybrid work world where people work half the time outside of the office, maybe in a location like their homes. 
And so how do you, how do you measure that? It's definitely a great question, but I have to say that definitely reducing the amount of small particulate matter that's in the air and cleaning the air more often, as well as introducing more fresh air and oxygen, there's tons of evidence uh, behind how that contributes to human health. I think it probably will be three to four years down the line before we have any constructive evidence about what kind of difference this makes. It's very difficult, isn't it? Because many offices have gone to a hybrid working pattern, so the stats are going to be slewed. But I'm just wondering if you have any anecdotal evidence that the interest in wellness is actually paying off in terms of human enjoyment in an investment? This is a great question. And I think people want to be outside more, you know, whether it's working outside or or walking for health or just, you know, gathering outside. We're getting a lot more engagement with our landscape architects and talking about, you know, how do we make outdoor spaces year round? It's such a great question. I don't know how much of it we'll see you know, long-term, you know, I think about, you know, this isn't the first pandemic that's affected humans. And so it's amazing how quickly we revert and go back. And so I'm I'm so curious to see what of all this sticks. I guess this is the first pandemic we've had to deal with, but we've also had the kit and the technology available to help people work at home and not in an office. But I agree with you. It will be interesting to see how much of these changes stick because human nature does forget and move on, doesn't it? Amber, I wanted to go back to accreditations, which you were talking about a bit earlier. What does it mean to be an accredited green building professional? Excellent. Great question. The accreditations basically mean that you as a professional have studied different green building frameworks and have learned about different strategies, whether it be about optimizing air quality, energy efficiency, construction waste reduction, things like that. And there are different frameworks. So for example, one is LEED. And that one, as I mentioned earlier, focuses on a building's impact on its immediate environment and occupants. Then there's WELL, which is about occupant health in the built environment. And another two that I find extremely interesting are Passive House Consultant Certification, which is all about a building's envelope and energy efficiency and thereby air quality as well. And then there's the most stringent building standard, which is very ambitious, the Living Future Accreditation for Professionals. And this is to create buildings that are self-sufficient, clean more water than they use, create more energy than they need. It's really about having a positive impact instead of reducing the harm that a building has. Being an accredited green building professional, it's really about the continuing education. It's about getting credits every year, very much like you would for your design or architectural license. You continue learning about advances in green building and technology and just staying at the forefront of green building practices and sharing that information with your colleagues and clients and and just pushing the industry forward with this knowledge. And how has your continued education contributed to your ability to design for wellness? Well, it's fascinating. During the pandemic, I did a lot of hours of continuing education for the WellAP rating accredited professional. And there were just so many interesting things going on at that time from learning even more about particulate matter in the air and how to design 
uh, for clean air and optimized indoor air quality, watching lessons from professors at Harvard that focus on latest advances in this technology to learning from a doctor who's also an environmental psychologist talking about healing in the body and stress's impact on brain chemistry and how environments can reduce that with use of light, air, color, circulation. And thinking about a project now, can you tell us a bit about 10 Hallett Point and how you incorporated wellness elements into it? Absolutely. 10 Hallett's Point is a mixed-use residential high-rise development, and um, Spacesmith was hired to design all of the tenant amenity spaces. So we were going for LEED. It achieved LEED gold. So in that sense, it had you know water conservation, on-site treatment of water and reuse, green roofs that reduced water runoff, conserved a lot of energy. When it came to this and, and how we incorporated wellness elements into it, first of all, I mean, the developer did a great job choosing a site. It's a waterfront site, a park nearby, and there's a ferry that connects you to Manhattan and Brooklyn and other places. So even that connection to water already brings a wellness element into the building site. I would say one of the things that was very, very important in this project was to reduce harmful chemicals and building materials. So in addition to everything that was already on that lead checklist, there was a special focus on really eliminating materials of concerns. And for the SEO Family of Services Genevieve Family Life Center project, Spacemith focused on a human-centered and trauma-informed design approach. Can you explain a bit more about what this means, especially the trauma-informed design elements? SCO Family of Services is an organization that really works in the broadest sense to keep families together. The Genovese Family Life Center focuses on a few of their programs, and the main focus is really their foster care program. When I started learning about foster care as someone who is a designer and is trying to be empathetic with people who are going through a very, very difficult traumatic time in their lives, got me into researching trauma-informed design, which stems from trauma-informed care in the medical industry. And trauma-informed care is an approach to treating a whole human based on their life circumstance and experience. And to me, as a designer and professional, it was very important to empathize and begin to learn how I could make this the most welcoming experience for people who are going through through a very difficult time. Um, so a few concrete examples of that is as soon as you walk in, well, first of all, there's automated doors. So a lot of people are coming with strollers. So there's actually three security personnel in a very small space, but the security personnel actually open the door for you from behind their safety glass. And that immediately, you know, feedback we got from the users was they felt they felt welcome. And then color, there's a there's a distraction element in the space with beautiful wall covering and it's colorful. Even seating arrangements. So make sure people who are going through trauma or anybody really uh, want to make sure that their backs are against walls and they are facing out so that they can survey the space. And a family can choose where their visit takes place. They can choose their room size, their room location, and they also have control over the lighting. So dim lighting is very soothing and calming. Bright lighting energizes. Same with color. 
a color that is uh, warmer, like red or yellow, uh, is actually more energizing and agitating than if we go to the blue-greens ends of the spectrum. And I guess the last thing I'll mention is acoustics. So how do we plan for acoustic speech privacy and also so that the noise from somewhere doesn't disrupt an activity or a a difficult conversation or or anything? Thank you. And Amanda, coming to you now, you've worked with a variety of communities. Does the approach to wellness change when you're dealing with different age groups? Great question. It definitely does. There's a bunch of overlap and you know, making sure that all populations feel a connection to to nature, connection to each other. I'll start with maybe the older populations being considerate of of glare and contrast, just the, the visual changes, you know, that happen over time. That population generally, you know, falls or a huge risk to their health and well-being in general. And so making sure we're cognizant of how to prevent that. Flooring is a great place to start and making sure that, you know, there aren't perceived changes in elevation. So making sure that there's not, you know, contrasting strips or things like that, that might make somebody go off balance. The other part of that is glare, which can also give that kind of false contrast, but also be really uncomfortable for someone who doesn't have their full view of things. Kind of the third part of view for that population is the, over time, this is happening to all of us, uh, our corneas are aging and yellowing. And being aware of that in color selection is something we pay close attention to. And can wellness be applied in every phase of a building? So not just looking at the interior design, but as an architect, do you look to implement it in all elements of the build? So including the envelope and heating and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. We kind of talked about the building envelope earlier from, you know, a thermal comfort and daylighting perspective, but thinking about the exterior of a building as the first impression of a project is uh, something we consider immediately, how proportions can connect us to nature in addition to provide wayfinding connect us, you know, to what we might experience inside. So, you know, I think the building envelope is a massive place to exercise wellness and thinking about shadow play, how that can connect us to the time. Thank you. And finally, how easy is it to implement wellness elements while retrofitting a building? Are there any easy wins? Oh yeah, for sure. Considering the natural light, the amenity and those views, I think is the first place to start in, in laying out your space, making sure people are near those. So you can kind of locate you know, your core spaces like restrooms or storage away from that and really provide those views and natural light to people all the time. Other place is lighting and making sure that the, the temperature of all the lights are the same and that it's warm. For us, we pay a lot of attention to indirect lighting and how that can kind of create a, a soothing space, but also be a great opportunity to highlight a natural material or a warm color that might cast over a space. And then there's always paint. You know, paint's a great place to, you know, every project is painted <laughs> in general. And so it's a great place to bring in warmth, to bring in texture um, and pattern. So thank you very much today for joining us. Nav and I have both learned a lot and we appreciate your time. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for the time. And man, it was a pleasure to listen to you too, Amber. Oh, likewise, Amanda. I want to ask you to come to teach my students too. (laughs) I appreciate that. Thanks again. This was fun. We welcome your feedback on the podcast. So please aim all your comments to waneditorial at haymarket.com. 
You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So follow, download and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective, wherever you are. Thank you.